so I'm Andy Hall, and um, I've been introducing myself recently like this, that, uh, that I'm Anglican by conversion, conservative evangelical by theological training, and charismatic Pentecostal by uh, practice and persuasion. Uh, and I tried that at our local Episcopal church uh, during Holy Week when I was doing one of their special communion services. And the rector, who, uh, who's pretty mixed up himself, I think, came and, uh, and said, says, well, you're really one mixed up cookie, aren't you? And I, and I said, yeah, but you know, like chocolate chip cookies, you know, if there's one bit you don't like, there's probably a bit you do like. So hopefully you'll get something out of, out of uh, what I'm going to be saying today. So um, I will just check what the time is. So that, there we go. I know when I'm in to finish. Um, I'm talking about, this morning, I want to talk about creating a fear-free culture. Uh, that, as you know, everything is about culture. That the culture we have is the environment which grows the seed that we have. If you have the wrong environment, even if you have good seed, uh, you, can't grow, you can't grow good fruit. So seed of the gospel that's in us is good, but we have to create culture to, to nurture and grow whatever it is that God's put in us. It doesn't just spring up um, on its own. And so every church has to decide what's its culture going to be. And one of the things that uh, I think is very important if we want to see the kingdom coming is that we develop a fear-free aspect in our culture. Fear-free. Just because we become Christians does not mean we're automatically exempt from this negative emotion. In fact, for many people, their experience is that they were doing fine until they became Christians. And, and then suddenly, stuff went off, off all over the place. And often, fear is one of those things that the enemy uses to hinder us in expanding the kingdom. So in, in Luke 12, 32, um, Jesus was speaking to his disciples in, just in the context of leaving everything going, following him, believing that he could provide for them. And he says in 32 of Luke 12, he says, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, God is absolutely head over heels, jumping up and down with excitement. He is so pleased that he could have the opportunity to download some more of his kingdom into your life. That's what the pleasure is. But then you notice that Jesus said, fear not because the Father wants to give you this. And it, because the fearing on our part kind of puts a, a, a barrier, shuts a door, and stops the Father being able to release all that he wants to release of his kingdom in us. Because everything in uh, the kingdom is God proposes, God initiates, God, and then we have to respond in order to see the thing, whatever it is God's saying, come to the earth. And fear mucks up in our responses to God's loving initiative. So we have to take Jesus' words here seriously. He says, fear not, little flock. He says it many times. We need to learn how to overcome fear if we're to have the entirety of the kingdom that the Father wants us to have. And it's right there throughout the Bible. It starts right away in Genesis 3, verse 18. Adam uh, speaking, having, having uh, done some things that he shouldn't have done. And what does he say? He says, I was afraid, so I hid. Genesis 3, 
uh, is it uh, 18 or 10? No, 10, 310. I was afraid, so I hid. Now, the immediate, the immediate impact of fear operating in Adam's life, just a few seconds after the initial fall, what does fear do? Fear causes Adam to hide from God. And one of the things that fear is particularly corrosive against is intimacy and relationship. And so because fear had come in along with all the other stuff, immediately Adam is hiding from God. So it affects, uh, fear comes in and affects our uh, vertical relationship, but also it affects our horizontal relationships. If we're afraid of how people will react, we tend to withdraw, protect ourselves, and we begin to reduce our levels of intimacy and connection. So right there at the beginning in Genesis, I was afraid, so I hid. Fear causes us to hide from one another and from God. Um, another, another one in Genesis, right on the story of Sarah, and God speaks to Sarah uh, uh, and says, you're going to have a, a, a son, and Sarah laughs. Then she realizes that God has heard her laughing and she decides to cover up. And, she, and, she, and eventually God says, no, you did laugh. I, I know you did. I know everything. And she says that I was afraid, so I lied. I was afraid, so I lied. Genesis 18:15. When fear is operating in your life, it is incredibly easy to lie to not tell the truth, to hold back some information, to be less than truthful. The, 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 the effect of fear inside of you is that you will find stuff coming out of your mouth and you're chasing after it saying, I wish I could pull that word back because what I just communicated was not true. Why did I let that little not true worm come out of my mouth? Because it's a manifestation of fear in my heart. So when there is fear, there is often a less than truthful atmosphere. We don't speak the truth in love to one another when our hearts have a dose of fear. Um, fear has um, another impact. It, it creates an anxiety in us that we are going to lose things. We're going to lose our treasures. And we see this um, in the story Jesus tells about the parable of the stewards who are or the servants who are given the master's money, people call it the parable of the talents, don't they? Matthew um, 25, 25. But I assure you, it's not a talent show. It's not the X factor. It's about gold. Talents was a, a weight of gold, a, a capital sum, a huge amount of money, and the master gave um, uh, this to each of the servants. He gave them a large amount of money. He was trusting them with his entire fortune. And uh, in Matthew 25, 25, um, or 24, it says, the man who had received the one talent came, master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is, all that belongs to you. And of course, he's basically defrauded his master 
of at least the bank interest that he could have had, or a lot more if he'd, had the, if he'd been fearless and invested it. But because he knew his master had a bad temper, because he knew that, um, that his boss was a little bit unpredictable and a little bit volatile, and because of fear, he took the gold that he had and he, and he just buried it in the ground. He buried his talent. And that quickly transfers, into, uh, easily transfers into our activity with the kingdom, that we have been given a life. We've been given a life which is a talent. It is an investment from heaven. It's put into our life. And if we allow fear to rule in our life, the result is we bury our life. We do less than we were designed to do. We don't produce the reward for Jesus that he is entitled to expect from his suffering because we're afraid that somehow our master might not be pleased with us. And the the refuge of fear is always do nothing. The refuge of fear is always to bury and not take a risk. So another thing that fear does is it results in us burying our talents, our abilities, our usefulness to God because we're afraid of the reaction that there will be. And so God gets less than he's entitled to expect. Another thing that fear does is it gets in the way of my believing for the miracles that Jesus wants to flow through my life. And we see this in Matthew, in, in, sorry, in Mark uh, chapter 5, and it's the, 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 Mark's account of the healing of Jairus' daughter, 5.36, I think it is. And uh, so the little girl had died, and, and, and they're saying, why bother the teacher anymore? And ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Do you see the connection? Jesus says, I'm going to do this almighty miracle, but the thing that can stop me, dead, can stop heaven coming, is if you, Jairus, give in to fear. And that every time we give in to fear, we effectively curtail anything that God wants to do through us because fear stops the kingdom coming. So it is a major issue. Um, Fear results in almost always, when fear is operating in us, it results in us embarking on futile actions, things that are not actually going to do much. Do you know one of the, one of the biggest things in organizations and churches is, well, we don't really, we're not really sure what to do, but we ought to do something, and so we'll do something so everybody can see that we're doing something. And that's futility, just doing something for the sake of doing something. Fear moves us into a place of futility. And the the best biblical example of this is in Judges chapter 6. You all know the story of Gideon. And uh, Gideon has been having a hard time in the Midianites. They've been robbing, stealing, plundering, taking everything. So, you know, it was quite legitimate to be a bit worried about your income and, 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 and your health when there's a bunch of Midianites marauding around the land. And, what the, and the story starts in, in 6 with Gideon has taken some wheat that he's ma- uh, managed to preserve from, the, from the, the, the thieves and he's gone down into a wine press. 
Now, I'm sure you don't know much about ancient Near East uh, winemaking, but let me tell you that a wine press is just basically a big dark hole in the ground. He's gone down into a big dark hole in the ground to thresh some wheat that he's keeping safe from the people he's afraid of. And, of course, you'll probably realize that threshing wheat was a necessary thing where they threw the wheat up in the air and they beat it with a stick and the wind caused the grain, which was heavier than the chaff, to fall in a different place. And so gradually you've got a pile of wheat and you've got a pile of chaff over there. And the, the thing that enabled the two to be separated was wind. There is not much wind at the bottom of a deep, dark hole in the ground, which is called a wine press. So what is he doing? He's, seen, he's got to be seen to be doing something. He's a leader of his tribe. He's got to be seen to be busy. And he's doing something, but fear is making him do something which is completely futile, a complete waste of time. Because he's throwing it up, and it's falling down, and he's throwing it up again. And all he's got is the same as when he started. It's futility. But it says, for fear of the Midianites. So when fear operates in our life, we will do things, but mostly what we do end up doing is futile. And, um, and God had plans for Gideon. And because God had plans for Gideon, he couldn't allow this young man to continue in his fear, because if he did, he would bring God's plans for the nation to futility. So God had to deal with Gideon. And so the angel of the Lord arrives in the wine press. It must have been pretty cozy in there because there's the angel of the Lord and his Gideon sort of pasted against the wall of the wine press. I think I would be if the angel of the Lord appeared to me. And the angel of the Lord, you all heard this before, says to him, yo, mighty warrior. And Gideon, as you've all heard everyone say before, is looking around, trying to see where the mighty warrior is, and then realizes that it's him. And he's immediately got this conflict between the fear that's inside of him and the word that the Lord is speaking to him. The way we begin to come out of the grip of fear is when we begin to hear the voice of the Lord speaking to our true identity. Because it is only our true identity that will conquer the fear identity that the enemy wants to put on us. Fear causes... Um, so so I, began, I began to look at this when we were looking at, uh, in the church at, um, at the book of Judges. And I began to see as a pattern. And, and I saw it in, in Gideon's life. The first thing, how he gets, starts to move Gideon out of the wine press and into his, into his destiny, he, starts, he speaks to him about his identity. He calls him what he sees him to be. The Lord calls him mighty warrior. That's the first thing that he speaks to. But the second thing that he speaks to is um, his uh, purpose. And God speaks to Gideon and he says, get out of this wine press and rescue Israel out of the hand of the Midianites. So he says, you're a mighty warrior, get out of the wine press, do something, purpose, identity and purpose. And then, and then a few verses further on, it says a really interesting thing. It says the Holy Spirit comes upon Gideon and he blows a trumpet and starts the war. But actually the phrase that, 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 that actually means in the Hebrew there is that that the Holy Spirit wore Gideon like a glove. Now that's, that's quite weird, isn't it? Here's Gideon, sort of, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes, 
<laughs> and gets hold of Gideon, and Gideon starts being moved by the moving of the Spirit inside of him. So there's three things that happen to get Gideon from the place of fear to the place of victory. Firstly, the Lord speaks to him about his identity, who he is. The second thing is he speaks to him about his purpose, go rescue Israel out of the hand of Midian. And the third thing is that the Lord releases an anointing of the Holy Spirit. So those three things, your identity, your purpose, and your anointing, if, if, if focused on, will enable you to say no to the invitation the enemy presents on a regular basis to live in fear. And I, I thought, wow, that sounds like a really good principle, but it's probably just in the Old Testament. And so, you know, I, I wasn't too excited until I actually started looking in the life of Peter and realized that this is exactly what Jesus did for Peter as well. He speaks to him, firstly, about his identity. Hey, you were, you were this, you were Simon, now you're Peter, the rock. So the first thing Jesus does is renames him. He speaks to his identity. The second uh, thing that Jesus does for Peter slightly later on is he speaks to him about his purpose. You can have a choice. You go into all the world and make disciples or, or feed my lambs. It doesn't matter which. God spoke to him about purpose. And the third thing in the story of Peter was that he needed to be anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't go and start this world mission until you are covered with power from on high. Acts 1.8. Wait in Jerusalem until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So those three things, identity, purpose, and um, anointing, are necessary if we are to move out of the fear culture into a fear-free culture. Fear causes us to be less Fear causes us to be less than we were designed to be. As a result, we compromise our identity, confuse our purpose, and quench our anointing. That is why fear is a big deal. I'll say that again. If we live in fear, we compromise our identity, confuse our purpose, and quench our anointing. Proverbs 29 and verse 25 says that the fear of man is a snare or a trap. The fear of man is a snare, but those that trust in the Lord will be kept safe. And we have a choice. We have a choice every day between the fear of the Lord and the fear of man. And when I say the fear of the Lord, that's just basic obedience. When the fear of the Lord is when God says jump, the only question you ask him is how high. That's the fear of the Lord. It's obedience to what God is saying. But what is the fear of man? Um, the fear of man is, is when I am more aware of the actions, reactions, feelings, and purposes of the people around me than I am of the obedience that the Lord is asking from heaven for me. So my focus is on people. What will they say? What will they do? What will they think? Uh, our, our, if we're, we're living in the fear of man, those are our constant uh, nagging thoughts and nagging doubts, and that is paralytic. Um, if we live under the fear of man, we're always going to live in reaction to the people around us instead of obedience to God. This results in a dislocation from our effectiveness. The fear of man connects us to an inferior reality 
which the fear of the Lord can connect us to. So we don't want to be walking in the, the fear of man. And, um, you know, it says it's a snare and it's a trap. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not into the fear of man. But, but if you've ever had the misfortune of seeing a rabbit caught in a snare where its leg is, is snared and it's stuck with the snare, because the snare is usually about that long, um, the rabbit can actually hop about. And, when it, and it can move because the snare doesn't make it immobile. And then the rabbit tries to move off in the direction that it wants to go, and it goes a few steps, and then suddenly it's pulled back to the reality that it is staked to one place. That's what a snare does. It stakes you to one place. You can still move about. You can say, hey, look, I'm a rabbit. You know, I'm hopping about, but I can't actually do very much. And so the fear of man doesn't paralyze you so that you can't move, but it just stops you moving into what God has for you. It stakes you in one place. So it's probably something that we should look at and deal with and remove from our lives. And a lack of confidence and boldness in kingdom stuff uh, often, is often based in our fears. And fear, if allowed to grow, becomes an immobilizing, paralytic, force in our life. Now, at this point, I have to put in uh, a little caveat. I have to put in a little warning because there is some fear that is good. If you're standing on the top of a very tall building, leaning outwards with the wind blowing from behind you, and you're afraid that you might fall, you're sensible. Move. Yeah, there, there, there is a fear that is, is legitimate and practical and life-saving. And I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't have, have that. Um, but, but the fears that I'm talking about that operate, um, someone helpfully described, spelt fear this way. I, I'm a bit dyslexic, so I had to ask someone if this was actually right. F-E-A-R, false expectations that appear real. False expectations that appear real, F-E-A-R. The sort of fears that the enemy gets up and the enemy stirs up are very often false expectations that appear to us to be real. Um, and many of you have heard this story. Uh, it's very common in Bethel, I know. It's the story about the man in Florida who had this wonderful life. He was living down in the, in the Everglades somewhere, and he had this beautiful house. He had a deck and a, and a deck chair. that He would go out in the morning with his orange juice and his newspaper, and he'd have his breakfast looking in, and basking in the sunshine, looking out over the wilderness. And so one day, he's uh, swinging in his deck chair, and his hand just happens to sort of fall down beside it. And as he's swinging backwards and forwards, his hand comes into contact with a cold, slimy, reptilian sort of feeling-like thing underneath his chair. And he thinks, I wonder what this is. And he leans down and has a close encounter with the gnashing jaws of the local alligator. He jumps up and runs for his life. This is apparently a true story. He runs for his life with the alligator pursuing him. Dives through the screen door and shuts it. And the alligator is banging against the door wanting him for breakfast. Well, this was quite a traumatic experience for our friend. And so he decided to move. So he moved from Florida to 5,000 feet up in the Rockies in Montana. 
That's how far he went after this experience. And, and so he goes up there and he's got this beautiful house with this beautiful view of the mountains. And a few months later, some of his friends from Florida come to visit him in his mountain paradise. And they say, isn't it wonderful? This, you've got such a beautiful view of the mountains. You must really enjoy going out on, your, on your, your deck there and swinging in your chair and looking at the beautiful scenery. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Well, why not? Well, no, 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 no. Couldn't possibly go out there. But, but, but why couldn't you go out there? It's beautiful. Look at the scenery. No, 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 no. And I said, why? There could be an alligator there. Now, just in case you don't know, alligators don't live 5,000 feet up in the Rockies. The nearest alligator to him was probably in Denver Zoo. The point is, there were no alligators in Montana, but this guy's fear, his false expectation that appeared so real to him, was curtailing his options, causing him to change his choices and to live a life less full than it could be because it happened to him once before. And I'd like to suggest that there are people here this morning who have experienced the negative because we all know that God doesn't just put an umbrella of protection over us and that we never experience the negative. We have experienced the negative. Once the enemy has got a negative established in our life, his next step through fear is to get us to change our behavior because that negative might happen again. A false expectation. It's probably you had a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but the enemy is telling you that it could happen again tomorrow. Fear always asks the what-if question. Fear always tells you that every escaped axe murderer in the west end of Glasgow is standing in the next alleyway down when you go out to do praying for people on the streets. Fear always says what if, and I know it's a bit crass to say it now, but roller coasters are a real example of that, that when you get them to a roller coaster, it's interesting, they make you queue up for two hours, that's just to build up the tension, and then you get into the, you get into the carriage, and, it's, and I'm fine until the bar comes down, and then I remember that the last time I was in this same situation, I was scared witless, and I fervently prayed, oh Lord, if you get me out of this alive, I'll never go in one of these things again. And then, to my horror, the thing starts moving, and I realize that I've broken my promise to God. There's no help there. And we're going, dun, 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 and it gets up to the top. And then it starts to go down. Why does everybody scream when it's going down? The reason is because everybody inside their heads have got little trajectories going like this. Ooh. If I fall out of this thing now, I'm going to land just there. Now, I know that's a bit sick after what happened to the little boy down in Yorkshire, but, but it's a good story, and I'm not going to let current events change my story. So everyone screams because they think, ah, this is dangerous. This is a um, fear always paints the worst possible case scenario. Always makes things look worse in our imagination than they actually are, in fact. There's a man in the Bible who had a real problem with fear. He was a righteous man, a godly man. That man was Job. Job was so afraid of what might happen to his family that he was regularly offering sacrifices to try and persuade God to protect them. 
course, it's not God that's got the problem. It's the other guy. And that the devil is looking at, at, at Job's fear-based lifestyle. And he comes to God, and he actually says to God, in putting it in my words, that guy has got a wide-open door, and I want to go through it. And the door that's open is fear. And after all the disasters that happen in Job's life, what does he say? Job 3, 24, 25, around there, he says, that which I feared has happened to me, that which I've dreaded has come upon me. What does Job realize at that point? He's, he's telling us the whole, the whole clue to, to the story is that because I was afraid, because I dreaded bad stuff happening, I was afraid and I was fearful, that which I feared has come upon me. That fear is a most powerful manifestation of negative faith. That nothing happens in the spiritual realm of the kingdom or the kingdom of darkness. Nothing happens except where faith is extended. And when we move in fear, it's like waving a little red flag to the devil saying, I am believing for all that negative stuff. And everybody in my family at a certain age got a certain disease and I'm just so fearful that that's going to happen to me. Hey, I'm actually believing for it. And the enemy is only too happy to oblige when you operate faith in what he can do. So fear has a tendency to become a self-fulfilling prophecy over our lives. Now, I've been telling you all the bad news. Let's start moving on to some of the good news soon. But um, when we have to move out beyond the green zone of church to the red zone of kingdom conflict through the ministry to people. Um, the fear and anxiety have a really weird effect on us. I, I've trained people to do evangelism for years, and you can tell the ones who are really afraid because they're all up, stressed out, uptight, heading towards the nearest non-Christian. I must evangelize, I must evangelize, I must evangelize. And when they get there, they just go, blah! And then they, and worse, they probably give them a handshake, which is like so sweaty that it's unbelievable. And they go, oh, that's not, oh. And they come back and they say, yeah, they won't, the leaders won't be able to make me do that again for at least a year. Now that was not a pleasant experience for you. It definitely wasn't a pleasant experience for the person being witnessed to. Fear ruins more people's enjoyment of evangelism than anything else. Do you know, Jesus said the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You can quickly work out if somebody has a fear problem by what comes out of their mouth. And the language, and the language response of the spirit of fear is words like this. Can't, won't, shan't, don't. Uh, very prescriptive to others because if you do it, I feel I have to do it. So I want to close you down. I say you can't do this. We shouldn't do that. We're not allowed to do this. Very often you hear these negative shutdown statements and they're, they're always dressed up as wisdom. Yeah, we've got to be careful, you know. We've got, to be, we've got to be so careful in what we do. But actually, that is the spirit of fear, very often speaking. And we've got to get, we have got to deal with this. Because a fear-filled heart, the ultimate destination is denial of Jesus. That is the ultimate destination of Fear. And how do I know that? Because of the story of Peter. 
Peter thought he was the bee's knees. Peter was bold. Peter was brassy. Peter was strong. But Jesus knew, and he said, you know, you're going to betray me three times, and, and, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. That's why the story has a good ending, because Jesus had prayed for Peter. Peter didn't realize he had a fear problem until it was manifestly thrown in his face in the high priest's courtyard. Peter, who had been so bold for Jesus on the outside, was actually battling a spirit of fear on the inside. I, when I became a Christian in 1977, 80 or 90 of my compatriots became Christians within a few months. Just, you know, people who led us to Jesus said, tell people about what God's done for you. And they just all got saved and ran out of friends and had to go bothering people on the high street. But, the, but that was my experience, a massive move of God in, in our town at that time. It was happening all over the world. Um, and, but the thing that really hit me a few years later was when I went back to that town and discovered how few of the people that, that I knew they'd been saved, because I led them to the Lord, how many of the people were actually still going on with Jesus. And I, and I really struggled with that, because it was a real, real disappointment. And God spoke to me, and he said, and he reminded me of two things. He, he gave me a verse from Philemon, verse 6, which uh, says basically this. It says, those that are active in sharing their faith gain a greater understanding of their faith. That was the verse in Philemon. And then he reminded me of something that happened when I'd been a Christian two weeks. Now, my, as I said, my, my people who led me to the Lord said, tell people what God has done for you. So I've lined up this guy that I'm a friend, that I'm going to talk to. So I'm sitting in the sixth form study area, and I'm telling him what Jesus has done for me. And he's kind of like listening, and it's all going well. But another friend who had ears like an American spy satellite walks past, picks up the conversation, and broadcasts it to the entire year group. Hey, <laughs> come and see this. And he's gone and got religious. And within about two minutes, I had the entire year group, 30, 18-year-olds, standing around me in a circle just hammering me with questions, just bombarding me. Now, I knew nothing. That's never stopped me from speaking before, and it didn't stop me speaking then. And I am knocking back question after question. I am just making up theology on the hoof. You know, don't worry, God will not fall off the throne of the universe if you make some theological error in the pursuit of saving souls. Okay? And so I'm knocking back all of this, making it up as I'm going along. Now, now what God showed me, he said to me when I was worried about all these friends who'd fallen away and why it was that I was one of the few that was still going on with God. He said, on that day, you nailed your colors to the mast and fear had no place. So two things. Those that are active in sharing their faith gain a greater understanding of their faith. It's an upward spiral. The more you share, the more you understand the more you understand, the more you want to share. The more you share, the more you understand. That's the upward spiral of Philemon 6. But the downward spiral is fear tries to stop you from sharing. The less you share, the less you understand. The less you understand, the less you want to share. And the more afraid you are of sharing, and so you go down the spiritual plug hole. And it's two, it's a choice, up or down. And fear stands in the middle of that equation, trying to persuade you to be silent. That fear always leads 
ultimately somewhere in some place to a denial of Jesus. It has to be. And now I, want to, I don't want you to think that I've got, I don't have a problem with fear. I've worked on the streets in London for years as an evangelist. And I, I met the mad axe murderer in the next doorway down. I met lunatics running around. I met fearful situations. And I still had to steel myself to go out and do that. But it shouldn't be a lifestyle. It shouldn't be the perpetual thought, what if, what if. So I want to, um, I want to take the last 15 minutes to um, just talk about what are the answers to this. Because I think I've done a fairly good job in telling you there's a problem. As I've, it might help if we had an answer. Um, okay, so the first thing is this. We have to remember that boldness is not a feeling but a choice. Boldness is not a feeling but a choice. If you wait till you feel, you will not get there. Boldness is not a feeling but a choice. You have to choose to be bold. How do I know this? Joshua 1.9. God speaking to Joshua commands him and he says, Have I not commanded you? Be bold and courageous. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it's a, spiritual, it's a biblical principle that the commands of God are not addressed to your emotions. They're addressed to your will. That means you can choose. It's not whether you feel like it, it's what you will do. And so the commands of God are always addressed to our choice. You know, and, when it, when, and believe it or not, when God says, husbands love your wives, etc., etc., that's a command to the will, not just to the feelings, not just to the emotions. And it's the same with fear. So we can't command our, our emotions, but we can command our will to choose to do right. And um, I remember when I first learned this, um, it was, uh, I was on an outreach with about 100 people in um, Brighton, in Churchill Square, and we were doing these huge dramas. We had crowds of two or 300 people, and then we were paired up, and we had to go out and speak to people in the crowd, which was great. And I was paired up with this, this Swiss girl who didn't speak much English, but she had this sort of Exocet missile sort of tracking system for spotting the right person to talk to. And so we, there was not many people this day. There were some people away on the, on, sitting on the edge of the square, and she's scanning. Deep, 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 beep, 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 beep. She locks on to this character right on the far side of the square. So we set off across the square. Now, as we begin to get closer to this character, certain things begin to come into focus, like his vast size, both this way and that way. And we're heading a bit closer. And, and then, then the life-size skull that formed his belt buckle began to come into focus. And interesting emotions and interesting things were beginning to happen to my knee joints. They were independently rotating. As we got a bit closer, his leather jacket with uh, I'm a Hell's Angel Club type sort of studs on it. And now there's a herd of elephants running around in my lower bowel. And I'm heading towards this guy. And then I discover, as I get really close to him, that this really large... Um, hell's angel whose beer belly falls outside his waist, leather waistcoat in two great lobes on either side of the, of the skull. He, he's there and he's, his face has had a close encounter with a baseball bat. So I'm heading towards a severely pissed off hell's angel and I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. At this point my mouth is stuck to the roof of my mouth. And the only thing that's keeping me moving towards this guy is pride that I don't want her to know how scared I am. So we pull up in front of him and she does the classic. She goes, ah, talk to him then. And so I open my mouth in a voice several octaves above the normal. Hello, 
<laughs> my name's Jesus. Oh, no, my name's Andy. Sorry, I was that confused. My name's Andy. What's your name? And then from deep down inside the bifurcated lobed belly that was hanging like this, this voice comes out. My name's Animal. Munch's silent scream was nothing on me. I was, gonna, I was out of there. I didn't care. You know, I could forget Usain Bolt. I could have won the Olympic 100 meters and the pole vault without a pole. I had so much adrenaline in my system. And I was just about, I was fast in those days. I was just about to be away on my toes because this was a scary situation. And then I remembered this teaching that I'd heard the week before. Boldness is not a feeling. Amen to that. There was no boldness anywhere to be found. Boldness is not a feeling. It's a choice. And I stood and I made the choice. And I said, that's interesting. Why do they call you? animal and we had this incredible conversation with him about forgiving your enemies we had a conversation about Jesus which we couldn't have had if I'd been 800 yards away boldness is a choice and the feeling of boldness comes after the choice not before yeah when you put yourself in the position God comes through so boldness is a choice not primarily a feeling to start with at least Secondly, boldness is acquired by prayer and praise. Uh, Ephesians 6, 19, you all know that Paul was a pretty, pretty bold guy. And yet he says to them, he says to the Ephesians, pray for me when I come to trial that I would speak the word of God boldly as I should. So there is, there is something of a grace of boldness to overcome fear that comes out of heaven when people pray. And it's as simple as that. It's not all about me. It's about heaven coming and enabling me and strengthening me. So that, and then boldness and the Psalms 34.4, I think um, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Okay, so prayer works. Praise also works because when we, when we lift up the high praises of God, it says in Psalm 149, I think it is, the high praises of God is a sharp two-edged sword. Would you like to go into battle with a penknife or a sharp two-edged sword? The more we praise God in a situation, the more sword we have. The high praises of God is a sharp two-edged sword. How many of you remember the film Crocodile Dundee? Yeah, some of some. You remember there where they're walking down the street in New York, and the mugger comes out, and he's got this switchblade. It's about that long, and he sort of threatens them. And she says, "Mick, Mick, give him the money." He's why should I give him the money? He's got a knife, and he goes, "Hell no, that's not a knife." And he pulls out this huge Bowie knife. Whenever the spirit of fear comes against you, raising up the high praises of God is. Because it magnifies God. Not, God doesn't get any bigger in your mind. In your mind, he gets bigger. He was already big. But the sword of worship pushes back against the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear is at best got a six-inch penknife. You've got the high praises of God, which is a mighty two-edged sword. Thirdly, anointing of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.31 They've been told not to speak about Jesus. And, 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 the, and Peter says, praise. And he says, oh Lord, would you strengthen us in order to do this? And the room is shaken. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And what does it say? They all spoke the word of God boldly. 
there is, there's a pattern here that the more we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the less we can be obsessed with the spirit of fear. And if we have fear, the question is, how full are we of the spirit? Because fear and the spirit don't live in the same space. Finally, the reason why I get afraid is because I have lost sight of the Father's perfect loving grip on me. That I think the enemy might be able to somehow take me out of his hand, do something that, 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 that might be unpleasant. I need to meditate on the Father's love. 1 John 4, 18, and this is, um, this is such a crucial scripture. 1 John 4, verse 18, so I'll actually read it out to you. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear has to do with punishment. God will not punish you for your failures. So what is, where's this feeling of being punished coming from? It's coming from the enemy. If God is for us, who can be against us? Perfect love drives out all fear. You do know, don't you, that you live your life in a, perf a permanent, perfect love surplus. You do. That's the Father's eye upon you, is with love. You live in a permanent, perfect love surplus. You have a surplus. Uh, what is it? Um, 1 John 3, how, one, verse 1. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished. Okay, now I know that some of you have heard me say this before, but Brits do not have a clue about lavish. You have, we have no idea. But if you want to know lavish, get an American friend and go with them to an American ice cream parlor. You know, I know that when Brits have an ice cream, if they have three flavors in one, one, um, one cup, they think they're really pushing the boat out. But my American friends have at least five, including pistachio and peppermint. And they have at least, and then they chop a ton of different nuts, three different sorts of nuts. Now the Brits, you know, if you have raspberry sauce, I mean that really is, is the epitome of, of excess, isn't it? But of course, my American friends, they have, they have a light brown sauce, a dark brown sauce, and two sorts of red sauce. And they put all of that in it. And, and, then, and also, you know, their bowl, this is, this is a British ice cream container. This is an American ice cream container, okay? And then they filled it right up to the top with different sorts of ice cream, and then comes the cream. And it begins to fill every space, and it begins to come up and up and up, and then, until it's got this huge Mr. Whippy top on it. And when it's a foot above the glass, they stop and it goes. That is lavish. That is lavish. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished upon us. Okay, so whenever there is a choice, fear, lavish love. How do you deal with fear? Blow this for a game of soldiers. I turn into the love. If you turn into the fear, 
you will just go further down that road. But instead, at that point, you choose and you say, I choose to turn into the love of the Father. I choose to meditate on the fact that I am loved with an everlasting love. I choose to love the fact that I have been adopted by a spirit of adoption that has driven out the presence of the spirit of fear from my life and I am no longer under the rule and reign of the spirit of fear. Romans 8, 15 to 16. And finally, 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul says that, Father had, that, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but instead he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Okay, God did not give us a spirit of fear. If there's a spirit of fear operating, where has it come from? Yes, it's come from the other guy. If the other guy is sending a spirit of fear against you, what do you do? In the name of Jesus, I nail this spirit of fear to the cross of Christ. I repent of even thinking of joining with it. And I ask you, Father, to send it away from me. And Father, as I send the spirit of fear away from my life, because Jesus said when you cast a demon out, bring something better in. I ask you, Father, what do you want to give me? And it says in that scripture, 2 Timothy 1, 6, 7, it says, for he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So I draw from heaven, heaven's solution to fear, and I put it inside of my spirit that it might take root below and bear fruit above, that the spirit of boldness would operate in me. And after you've done that a few times, the devil will give up. Because every time he pokes you with his penknife of fear, the response is so OTT, and you get so blessed, and you get so full, and you get so aware of the presence of God. He says, every time I try and intimidate them, they get stronger. That's the kingdom of God. That whatever the enemy tries to do, God comes in like a flood. He raises up a banner. He destroys the initiative of the enemy. Do you want to live with the loser or do you want to live with the king? Because if we live with fear, we live with the loser. If we live with the king, we live in boldness, courage, power. Those things which enable us to be all that God called us to be. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's pleasure for you to win. Amen. So, Father, what do you want us to do? Holy Spirit, we just invite you to um, move across the body now. And just, if there is any manifestation of the spirit of fear that has been robbing or intimidating my brothers and sisters in these past few weeks... Holy Spirit, would you just bring it to mind right now? Medical science calls fear phobias. Still fear. Holy Spirit, do I have life-controlling fears and phobias? As I was praying and preparing before the meeting, I've just felt God was saying that there's some people here who have a fear of confrontation. You fear confronting people and it's actually getting in the way of your job. 
you're in some role where you have to confront people and you're afraid of it. There's other people here who I know are battling with a fear of cancer. And it, it manifests itself in my mother was X number of years old when she died and I'm nearly that. And there's a fear-based response to your family health. Some other people are struggling with the fear of abandonment. Fear that, and there's other people who are really struggling with this thought. Fear of a negative situation that's going to happen again and again in your life. You struggle with the thought, oh no, it's going to happen again. And that's a, that's a really difficult fear. So whatever it is, if you've got fear, big, little, major, life-threatening, but all small, doesn't matter, and you would like to get rid of it today, I'm going to invite you to stand in a moment. If you just stand, and I'm going to pray a prayer based on 2 Timothy um, 1. And uh, there'll be time if you want personal ministry later to, to come up for prayer. But, so if you know that fear has been an issue, is an issue, and you would like to deal with a particular fear, fear that God's shown you this today, could you just stand, please? Now, what I'd like you to do is just to make a picture of this, is to just put that fear that you're, you're dealing with very specifically, just put it in the palm of your hand and just get ready and just lift it up to God as, as I'm praying, okay? You're doing your bit. So, Lord Jesus, I repent of joining with this particular manifestation of the spirit of fear. I say I don't want it in my life. I reject it. Enemy, I nail this manifestation of the spirit of fear to the cross of Jesus. I ask you, Father, to send it away from my life. Now, Holy Spirit, what do you want to give me in exchange for that spirit of fear that I've sent away? What is the divine exchange? And just receive what the Holy Spirit is now speaking to you about. Because you've sent away the rubbish. He's releasing a treasure. Just grab whatever it is that's just come into your mind. And just say, I'll take that. Father, I receive what the Holy Spirit has for me now in this area. And I plant it in my spirit. And I bless it. And I say, take root and bear fruit. So, Father, we raise up a banner and a declaration that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And when the enemy comes, tries to come back to this place, he's going to see that word written on the tablets of our heart. God has not given me a spirit of fear. And we hide ourselves under and in the word of God and believe that you're going to work salvation, sozo, in this part of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen.